Well, I, I promise that I did not do this on purpose, but that is literally the best introduction that could have been for my sermon today. The, the best thing. Because today we're talking about stewardship. We're talking about managing the resources that God has entrusted to us. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, and knowing Kevin and Grace, and not just this one decision, but their entire life, really their heartbeat is, we are stewards, we are managers of the resources that God has entrusted to us. We are not owners. And so that's exactly what we're talking about today. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to open it up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And we're going to start in verse 11. If you don't have your Bible, the scripture's up here on the screen. You can also uh, pick up that Bible in the seat back in front of you. We're continuing our series called Snapshots, just these little snapshots from the life of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. So we're in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. Luke writes this, he says, as they heard these things, Jesus, uh, that's he, Jesus, proceeded to tell them a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Let's just stop and do a little context work here. As good Bible scholars and as good Bible students, our first question when we read verse 11, when Luke says, as they heard these things, we should ask, as who heard what things? As they heard these things, who is listening and what things have they heard? Look back at verse 1. Look back at verse 1. It's up here on the screen. Luke says that he, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. So here's the deal. Jesus has been doing ministry in the north region of Galilee. And he's now making his way back down to Jerusalem in the south where the crucifixion and the resurrection will take place. We'll celebrate that on Easter. And, and, and he's going to pass through Jericho on his way down. So there's a map up here on the screen. There's a region north up in Galilee. That's where Jesus is. And he is journeying back down. He's walking back down towards Jerusalem. That's the bottom circle on the map. And he's passing through Jericho over there on the right. And according to this map, there was also a camel living south of Jerusalem there. I don't, a really large camel. Apparently, I don't know that this is to scale. That's not biblically defensible. But Jesus is in that city of Jericho there because he's headed from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem. And while he's headed down from Galilee to Jerusalem, he continues to teach. He continues to interact. He continues to call men and women to himself. And one of those occasions happens at the beginning of Luke chapter 19 in a city called Jericho. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And he enters Jericho, and there are thousands of people there still clamoring to hear him. Remember, they were crawling on top of one another to hear him, as we talked about last week. Those folks are still there. And, he, and, and Luke tells us that in, as he enters Jericho, Jesus enters Jericho, the chief tax collector in that town, who happened to be very rich, wanted to see Jesus. Well, perhaps he was curious. Perhaps he knew Jesus was from God. We don't know why he wanted to see Jesus. We do know that this man was short. Very short. So short, in fact, that he climbed a tree to see over the crowd so that he could see Jesus. Church people, you know what I'm talking about. Sing it with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. 
He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. You might sing it different than I do. Baptist version is the right version. <laughs> and as the Savior walked on by, he what? Looked up in that tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down. Well, I'm coming to your house today, right? Or I'm coming to your house today. You guys are horrible. It's a, it's a mess. You know, it's funny. I, 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 we, we sing that song to Kaya all the time. The great part is it's biblically accurate. That's exactly what happened. Zacchaeus climbs a sycamore tree because he's a wee little man. That's not what the Bible says. It says he was short. Okay, he's a wee little man. And he climbs a sycamore tree to see Jesus. And as Jesus passes by, he looks up in the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. And Jesus befriends him and radically changes his life. This is at the beginning of Luke chapter 19. So Zacchaeus' perspective and his attitude were so altered that he sold half of what he had and gave it to the poor. Remember, he was very rich. He sold half of what he had. And he paid back people that he had stolen from because tax collectors were extortionists, essentially. He paid back those people he had stolen from four times over. Now, back to our passage, Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things... Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable. Jesus is still in Jericho. In fact, he may even still be at Zacchaeus' house. Crowds are gathered. Zacchaeus has sold his possessions and paid back people four times over that he took from. And as they, the crowds, thousands, heard these things, the choices that Zacchaeus had made about his money after meeting Jesus, Jesus tells them a parable. Keep reading. Jesus says that a nobleman went to a far-off country to receive a kingdom. Now, I need you to track with me because it is very important that we understand what exactly is going on here. This might sound a little weird to us that a nobleman, excuse me, that a nobleman went to a far-off country to receive for himself a kingdom. That might seem a little strange, but it was very normal back then. Remember, this is the ancient Roman Empire. Rome was the big boss. Everything ran through Rome. So when noblemen inherited kingdoms or when they rose to official government authority, they would have to go to Rome in order to be officially appointed before they could officially rule. Such was the case with a man named Archelaus. Do you remember Herod the Great who was in power when Jesus was born? Everybody remember that? Archelaus was his son. And when Herod the Great died, right after Jesus was born, he bequeathed his kingdom to his son, Archelaus. But remember, in order to officially inherit the kingdom, Archelaus had to go to where? Rome for appointment. So right about the time that Jesus is born, Archelaus has inherited this kingdom from his father, Herod the Great, and Archelaus is headed to Rome in order to be officially appointed. But the citizens of that part of the Roman Empire where Archelaus was to become king in that particular region despised him. They despised him because he had desecrated the temple and he had killed 3,000 citizens on a whim long before he was officially appointed. And that's not a good thing to do even if you are officially appointed. Archelaus was not a good guy. He was in fact a monster. 
So much a monster is that when Joseph and Mary took Jesus when he was about two years old to Egypt and they were returning back to settle in Judea, Joseph, Jesus' dad, when he was two years old, heard that Archelaus had been officially appointed and he said, no, 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 we're not going to Judea. We're going to Nazareth in Galilee because I don't want to live where Archelaus reigns. Read Matthew chapter 2 and chapter 3. He ta- Matthew talks about Archelaus. But that's beside the point. The point is, when Archelaus went to Rome to receive official appointment, the citizens of Judea sent a delegation to say, hey, we don't like this guy. He's a monster. Please don't officially appoint him king over us. But the delegation didn't work. Archelaus was appointed king in that region anyway, and the people had to live under a reign of terror. Now, why am I telling you all this? Remember where Jesus is? He's in Jericho. Say it with me. Jericho. Herod the Great, Archelaus' father. Where did he die? Not a trick question. There you Say it. Come on now. Jericho. And Archelaus built one of his most majestic palaces in Jericho. And he built a very famous aqueduct to service his kingdom in Jericho. So when Jesus is in Jericho, Jericho and begins a story with a nobleman went to a far off country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. What do you think that his listeners pictured when they thought of a nobleman? Archelaus. How do you think they felt? Not good. This would have been one of those moments where Jesus' audience would have gone, hey, too soon, Jesus. (laughs) Too soon, buddy. This is not but 25, 30 years ago that this happened. This guy was a monster. This is not a good example. We're happy to be rid of him. But that's part of Jesus' strategy here. Now get this. This is very important. The first thing that Jesus wants his listeners to notice, and this will become critical as we unpack this story today, is that the character of the nobleman in the story is radically different than the character of Archelaus. Archelaus was a monster who desecrated the temple and ruled with an iron fist. But look at the character of the nobleman in Jesus' parable. Jesus says when the nobleman goes on his journey, verse 13 tells us that he gave each of his servants a mina. A mina is equivalent to about four months' wages, so it's not an insignificant sum. This nobleman on our story is a pretty generous dude. He gave each of his servants four months worth of money. He's not like Archelaus. Jesus' listeners' ears would have perked up. They would have immediately seen the comparison. They would have immediately made the connection. Most importantly, they would have immediately seen the contrast between Archelaus and the nobleman in the story. And what does the nobleman command his servants to do with the money? He says, engage in business until I return. He says, invest, make a profit. And by the way, the implication here is that there's some profit sharing involved. When the nobleman comes back, these guys are going to be rewarded if they turn a profit. So it makes absolutely no sense to send a delegation after this very generous nobleman in order to prevent him from receiving official appointment like they did with Archelaus. But the people in the story do so anyway. Total side note, this is a bit of a risk, right? Because if you send a delegation or if you're part of a delegation and you say, don't appoint this guy king, and then he gets appointed king anyway, you're always the people who didn't want the king to be king. That's not a good look. But just like in the case of Archelaus, the delegation in Jesus' parable doesn't work either. 
The nobleman is appointed king, and in verse 15, Jesus tells us that the nobleman returns to see what his servants have done with the money that he gave them to manage. Let's see what the servants have done. Servant number one reports that he's turned one mina into ten. That's a thousand percent profit. Business owners, that's pretty good, right? Thousand percent. Okay. Something came in my head that wasn't in my notes, but I made a good choice and I didn't share it. Let the record show I don't always say everything I think. Okay, so the nobleman, the nobleman commends servant number one, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I- I'm going to give you ten cities. Cities. He gave him four months' wages. The guy turns it into three years' wages, give or take, and the nobleman gives this servant ten cities. That's a pretty good profit-sharing plan as far as I'm concerned, yes? Pretty good. Look at servant number two. Servant number two has turned one mina into five. He gets the same commendation from his master and the same profit-sharing structure. He gets five cities. But look at servant number three. He panics. You know why? Because he thinks this nobleman is like Archelaus. But remember, this nobleman is not like Archelaus at all. Look at verse 20. It says, Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Again, his assumption is this man is like Archelaus. That word handkerchief, by the way, he says he takes the mine and puts it into a handkerchief. It's lit- it literally means napkin or serviette. So back then, if you were to uh, store money away and, and you were to do it in a secure way, you would bury it in the ground. But this guy literally takes a napkin from the back of his neck and wraps the money in a napkin. So not only is he lazy, but he's careless as well. Then he excuses his own behavior by accusing the nobleman. Look, look how he accuses the nobleman. That first word there, severe, he calls him severe. In the original Greek, that word is austeros, where, where we get our word austere from. This servant says to the nobleman, you are unmerciful, you are stern, you're unkind and exacting. Then, then check this out, he accuses the nobleman of taking what he did not deposit and reaping what he did not sow. What's he telling the nobleman that he's doing? Stealing. If you take what you did not deposit, that's called theft as far as I'm concerned. That's still true in Canada. A lot of changes in the law. But as far as I'm concerned, if you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow, you're stealing. The servant's accusing the nobleman of doing just that. And then the nobleman responds to the servant's accusations. Look at verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Then he asked him a question. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? FYI, this is one of them there rhetorical questions. Have you heard of those? So here's my paraphrase. This is Luke's paraphrase of the nobleman's response to these accusations. You've got to be kidding me. Is this a joke? Like, I'm unkind? That money in your hand, that's mine. I gave it to you to do business with and to steward, to manage. Thieves steal. 
I gave away. That doesn't make me a thief. That makes me generous. And the only reason you're holding it even now is because of my generosity and my kindness to you. Now listen close. Do you see how the character of the nobleman is important? It's critical in terms of the decision that servant number three makes. Archelaus was a monster, but this nobleman is kind and generous. And the servant falsely accuses the nobleman. I love how the nobleman dismantles the servant in verse 23. Look at, what, look at what he does. He dismantles his argument. He says, why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Our nobleman says to his servant, look, if you really believed I was austere, unkind, and dishonest, and a thief, you would at least have put my money in the bank. Literally, he says, you would have put it on the money changer's table so that you could at least gain interest. And he says, hiding it doesn't even make any sense. In other words, listen close now, our nobleman reveals that the servant doesn't actually believe what he's saying. If he really believed that the nobleman was austere and dishonest, he would have behaved differently. He would have put the money in the bank. So what's the servant really trying to do? He's using the smokescreen of character accusation. It's called the blame game. We've talked about it before. And he's excusing his own complacency. Let's finish the parable and then we'll apply it. Verse 24. And he, that's the nobleman, said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. The nobleman says, I tell, you, I, tell that, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus had a great teaching tool. That teaching tool was called parables. And this is one of them. Most of you know this, but for those of you who don't, a parable is a fictional story that's designed to illustrate a point. Parables are usually allegorical. That is to say the characters and the events in the parable represent some other person or situation. And for Jesus, parables are designed to represent spiritual situations and teach spiritual truth. This parable is no different. So let's just talk about who represents what here. The nobleman in the story represents Jesus, who, after his resurrection, was the rightful heir to God's kingdom. But like the nobleman, he went to a far-off country called heaven. The farthest country, by the way. And he will return one day to rule and reign in the full expression of his kingdom. The delegation that rejected the nobleman is the nation of Israel. Jesus was their rightful king and when he came, they rejected him. The servants that were given a mina, well, that's us. And we've been entrusted with resources to manage on the king's behalf. And while the servants in the story were supposed to make more money, we're supposed to make more disciples. For us, the profit we are expected to turn is greater impact for the kingdom of God. And when Jesus, the king, comes back from that far-off country, and check it, he will, by the way, he's going to be very interested in having a conversation 
about what we did with the money that he entrusted to us or the resources he entrusted to us. Now, a quick comment before we move on. The nobleman in Jesus' story has his enemies slaughtered. You probably noticed that. Two questions. Who are those enemies? And what does it mean to be slaughtered? First, the king's enemies are the members of the delegation that protested his kingdom. So the enemies are anyone who protests the rightful king. Personally, I believe that servant number three should also be numbered among the enemies. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire passage and show you why, but it's important that I'm really, really clear. I believe that servant number three is numbered among the enemies, not because of his complacency, but listen close, but because he rejects the nobleman himself. His complacency is important only because it reveals his true colors, but his rejection of the nobleman, that's the critical issue. And so at the end of the story, the nobleman gathers those enemies up and he says, have them slaughtered before me. What does it mean, slaughtered? Or does that term slaughtered refer to eternal judgment or hell? In short, yes, it does. But remember, this is a parable. What the nobleman does with his enemies represents eternal destination of those who reject him, but it's not meant to be a literal description of hell. Everybody with me? It's not meant to be literal. It's a symbol. So sometime down the road, we'll talk about what Jesus says about heaven and hell. But in this story, Jesus isn't trying to teach us what hell is or isn't like or what heaven is or is not like. I just wanted to make those two caveats just so everybody's clear this morning. So here's where we're really going to spend the bulk of our, or the rest of our time this morning. What is the point of this story? What is Jesus teaching us? When he tells us this parable about a nobleman that goes to a far-off country and he entrusts his servant, each with a mina, and he comes back and he holds them to account. And he says, how did you do? What did you do? I told you to engage in business. I told you to, to turn a profit. Talk to me. What's he trying to teach us? Here it is. The point of the parable is our bottom line truth today, and it just so happens to be the inspiration for our sermon title as well. So if you're taking notes, this is what you need to write down. Everybody ready? One, two, three. I am a manager, not an owner. That's what Jesus is trying to say. That each of us are entrusted with resources, and we are managers of those resources, not owners of those resources. Everybody say that with me. I am a manager, not an owner. Do it one more time. I am a manager, not an owner. Now try this one. The Leafs are going to win the cup next year. You guys are not nearly as excited about that one. Come on. Speak that into existence. Come on now. The Leafs are going to win the cup next year. Yeah, look at Everybody's so excited about it. I am. I don't own any of my money. I'm a manager of the resources God has entrusted to me. The Leafs are going to win the cup. I don't know. I can't buy that. I don't know. Everybody breaks down on that one. I'm a manager, not an owner. Like the servants in the story, Jesus has entrusted each of us with resources that he expects us to manage. He has gone away to a faraway country, but rest assured, he is coming back. And when he does, he will be very interested as to how we manage the resources he entrusted to us. For those who manage well, there's a promise of eternal profit sharing and heavenly rewards. 
Now, a lot of folks misunderstand the nature of those rewards and they completely hijack this parable. I hear people saying stuff like, God gives me money, then I obey him, I trust him, I sow my seed of faith, and then he gives me more money or a jet or whatever, all right? Can I make this really brief for you? That kind of theology is biblically indefensible and it's a complete embarrassment to the gospel. Yes, Jesus promises reward to those who are faithful. But what did we talk about last week? Do you remember? Eternal riches, heavenly reward, where moth doesn't destroy and rust doesn't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. More money in this life because I'm faithful with the resources that God has entrusted to me? That's completely biblically indefensible. The reward we receive for our faithfulness comes when Jesus comes back. When God's kingdom is fully realized and there's a new heaven and a new earth, we get eternal riches when he comes back. And until then, Jesus says, I've entrusted you with resources, manage them well. Now, this parable does communicate a principle that is applicable to all of the resources we have. Time, energy, and talents. They're all gifts from God, and we're meant to manage them well. But I believe personally that this parable is most concerned with money for two reasons. First, remember the context. Where is Jesus when he tells this story? He's in Jericho. What's just happened? Zacchaeus has just sold half of what he owns and given it away. And then he's paid back these people that he's stolen from four times over. That's the context in which which Jesus tells this story. Second, when he tells the parable, he uses an item or a a measurement of currency, money. He gets the the. Nobleman gives each servant a mina. Jesus doesn't say, the nobleman entrusts his servants with some grain or a plot of land or he teaches them all a craft. He uses money on purpose. Yes, for those of you who say the principle applies to anything that God has entrusted to us, time, talents, treasure, all that stuff. Yes, it applies all across the board, but Jesus is especially concerned with how we use the money that God has entrusted to us. And you might be thinking, you know what, I don't have any money to manage, so it doesn't apply, perfect. I'm just squeaking by anyway. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because as we apply this principle that we are managers and not owners, we're gonna talk about seven ways to be a great manager of God's money. Seven ways to be a great manager of God's money. And we're gonna start with the big picture and we're gonna work our way down to specifics. But I want to start with those of you who maybe had the same response I did when I read this parable. I don't have any money. Like I don't, like I'm a pastor, right? Okay, so, so, it, so I, this doesn't apply to me. Point number one, great way, seven ways to be a great manager of God's money, to manage God's resources well, is gain a realistic perspective of how much of God's resources you're actually managing. You can just write those words realistic perspective down. Gain a realistic perspective of how much of God's resources you are actually managing. You want me to help you do that? There's a website out there called Global Rich List. 
It allows you to input your annual income and it tells you where you fall compared to the rest of the world in terms of annual income. You ready to get your world rocked? If you make $18,000 a year or more, you're in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. If you make $48,000 a year or more, you're in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. Hold it. $48,000 a year or more, you're in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. If you make six figures, you're in the top 0.1% of the richest people in the world. You know, sometimes we compare ourselves to the person with like the new car or the new Lulu outfit or the great vacation and we think, you know, I don't have any money. Is that real? Like, is that accurate? Nobody wins in the comparison game. We talk about it all the time. Look, if you make $48,000 a year, I'm not saying you're rich. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that the statistics show that we have a whole lot more discretionary income than we think. And please be aware that God has entrusted you with that money to manage for his kingdom and his glory. And when he returns and brings his complete kingdom with him, we are going to be held accountable. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to manage God's resources well, does it not? And getting a realistic perspective as to where I'm actually at, how much of God's resources I'm actually managing, helps me to do that. Number two, point of application. Like I said, we're working from big to small, working from general principles to specific. Number two, constantly remind yourself, I'm a manager, not an owner. Say it with me. I am a manager, not an owner. One more time. I am a manager, not an owner. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We talked about that last week. It's not mine. It's not yours. We don't own it. It's God's. He owns it. He's entrusted it to us to manage it. Post it on your bathroom mirror. You want to get real crazy? Write the word manager on your favorite credit card. Remind yourself all the time, I'm a manager, not an owner. Find a way to be reminded. Number three, love this one. Trust the character of the master. Trust the character of the master. I want to tell you exactly what we're talking about here because I love this one. Remember that we said that the character of the master is critical in Jesus' story? That the nobleman who goes to a far-off country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return is not like Archelaus. He's not a monster. He's not exacting. He's, He's not a thief. In fact, this nobleman is kind and generous and good and gracious. In fact, he wants to set up a profit-sharing plan with you. That's pretty cool. Men and women of God, that's the heart of God. His character is gracious. He gives freely and generously to you and to me. He gives us resources to enjoy. He gives us resources to manage for his kingdom. And he wants to set up an eternal profit-sharing plan. He's put together a pretty good one because you turn four months' wages into three years' wages and then you get ten cities in return. That's pretty good. This is the heart of our God. And it's not even about money uh, in terms of the reward. It's about riches eternally, heavenly reward that won't grow old. 
And God, when we put his money to his use and to his goals and his plans, it's a big caveat, if and when we do that, he's on our team. He's on our side. God will bless those efforts. He wants us to succeed. Again, I don't know about you, but that sure makes me want to manage those resources well when I know there's an internal profit-sharing plan involved. That's pretty cool. Number four. Number four, learn the master's values. Learn the master's values. When the nobleman goes away, he encourages his servants or exhorts his servants or commands his servants to do business until I return. They have no way of knowing how the nobleman would invest his money and make a profit unless they know the nobleman very, very well, unless they know his values. We're going to illustrate this point. I need two volunteers, one person who would say, you know what, I know Lucas really, really well. I don't just attend church here. He and I are, he and I are friends, and, and we hang out, and, and I know him well. Some of you, nobody's raising your hand. I know so. Amy. Amy does. That's my wife. She does. Here's $20. I took it from your purse. Um, okay, now, now there'll be some of you that are really excited. Uh, so who, who, who has been at this church less than three weeks, less than four weeks? It doesn't know me at all. There's still $20 in it for you. Look, everybody's like, yeah. Give, give that $20. Make sure that goes back, choir. You, there you go. There you go. You don't know me at all. I don't, know, I don't even know your name. I feel like I'm doing a magic trick here. We, never, we didn't set this up beforehand. If I gave you $20 to invest, how would you invest it on my behalf? There you go. How, babe, how would you invest it on my behalf? Adoption? What else? Giving it to orphanages? Friends in Uganda? I might buy you dinner. I like doing that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. So you can keep it, and you, I need it back. Um, But look, unless they know my values, unless they know how my heart beats, they have no way to manage the money that I've just given them to manage. Men and women of God, unless we know God's values, unless we know that his heart beats for the widows and for the orphans, for the poor, for the destitute, for those who, those who uh, can't care for themselves, unless we know that his heart beats for his church, unless we know that his heart beats for people to meet him and come into relationship with him and see their lives transformed, then we just sit with God's resources and go, I don't know, I, I, I guess. But if you know him well and you'll walk with him a long time, like Amy could probably list 50 things that she would. And what's your name, brother? What is it? Glenn. Glenn, Glenn's up a creek, right? Because he, he just doesn't know me. I, I just compared myself to Jesus, I think. I think is what I just did, which is problematic. Sorry, Glenn. I do want to shake your hand afterwards, and you, you really can keep the 20, because I really did take it from my wife's purse. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't bother me. Um, but look, unless we know the master's values, unless we know how his heart beats, we can't manage his resources well. Number five, give to the church. Give to the church. This is how you manage God's resources well. Manage the resources that he's entrusted to you. And you might be thinking, all right, here we go. The church is asking for money. 
let's be really clear. And we said this last week. We, we unpacked it for a little while. We're just going to be really brief today. The church does not need your money. God does not need your money. The earth is his and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So if you think that the church needs your money or God needs your money, just keep it. <laughs> just keep it, because that's not the principle here. If we're managing God's money and learning the master's values helps us to manage his money well, let's talk about God's values. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Sure sounds like to me that Jesus loves his church, doesn't it? Sure sounds like to me that the master values the people of God. If you're looking for a guideline, by the way, of what to give to the church in Luke chapter 11, you can go back and read it. Jesus actually affirms a 10% tithe. He tells the Pharisees, look, you give 10%. He says, and that you should do. I'm not telling you to give 10%. I'm just saying some of you, like me, you look for a guideline, it's there. Side note. No, you know what? I'm just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that out. I'm just going to let you have that. If our heart beats for God's values and he loves his church, and we're meant to steward his resources and manage the resources he's entrusted to us. It makes sense why we would give to the church. Number six. Number six, develop a budget and stick to it. Develop a budget and stick to it. For some of you, you're really unhappy that I added that word stick to it because you have 97 budgets and sometimes it's hard to stick to it, right? I can do a budget. It's like I can plan a diet. My diet starts tomorrow, by the way, but sticking to it, that's the problem. Same thing with a budget. A budget gives you kind of rails to run on. It gives you freedom within boundaries. If you don't develop a budget, you just go crazy. Develop a budget that includes generous giving to the things that God values so that you steward his resources well. One of the things that Amy and I have chosen to do, if you want to do this, that's fine. Just one of the things that we've chosen to do is auto-giving, like auto-deduct from our accounts when we, when we give. So it's just like we never even see it. Just goes away. Develop a budget and stick to it. Number seven, for some of you, you're going to hate this one. Pray before you spend. You want to be a real good manager of God's resources? Pray before you spend. You want a real practical way to make yourself do that? Freeze your credit cards. And I'm not saying call and, and say, would, would you freeze my account, MasterCard or Visa? I'm saying literally freeze your credit card. Put it in a block of ice and put it in the freezer. Because the next time you're at Costco, praise God, and you think that you need that new generator or jacuzzi, you can't just go, where's my wallet? I need it. You got to go, oh, man, I got to thaw the thing out. And then you go home. It's like, all right, God, do, do I really need a new jacuzzi? You know? Is this going to go well as like a centerpiece in my living room? Is that really the jacuzzi? Is that? Pray before you spend. Go to God and say, God, I'm a manager, not an owner. I'm a manager of your resources. I, 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 want, I want to manage your resources well. Should I purchase that thing? Seven real easy ways to be a great manager of God's resources. One more illustration. 
just so you can get a good picture of what we're talking about, and then the band is going to come up and lead us in one more song. Imagine that this rope is your life. Imagine that, that you know, this is kind of a timeline of, of your life, and it goes from one side of the platform to the other here, and, and this is kind of when you're born back here, and then the rope goes all the way over to the other side, and this is the, ti- this is the timeline of your life. And imagine, there's still more rope over there, but imagine this kind of just goes out into eternity there, like, because all of us will live forever, and for those of us who know Jesus, we'll live together in eternity with him, and we'll be held accountable for how we steward God's resources. This is, the, this is your life for eternity. Everybody get that? We're entrusted with resources to steward for that, for his kingdom, for his glory, for eternity to make an impact. And most of us spend all of our resources in that little chunk of our life right there. That little red part of that rope, that's where we spend most of our resources, trying to make this part awesome. And we got all this stuff left to go. All this stuff that's going to last forever, all this heavenly treasure, all this eternal profit-sharing plan, and stuff that, that we get that moth won't destroy and rust won't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. The word of God lasts forever. His word doesn't come back void. And people's lives be changed and, and healing happens. And that stuff lasts forever. F- forever. And most of us are, are hell-bent on spending our resources here. Start thinking about this stuff, you know what I mean? Start thinking about that stuff, because we're managers, not owners of God's resources. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the way that you have taught us. Thank you for the ways that you care for us. God, I am especially grateful today, even as I taught this passage again and went back through it and learned even as I taught. The thing that's just impressed upon my heart right now to say to you, oh God, is that you are a good and gracious king and not at all like Archelaus. You, you, you've given us opportunity to succeed. You've entrusted us with your resources to steward for your kingdom. And, and Jesus, you said that you go to prepare a place for us. In your Father's house, there are many rooms. And Jesus, I love that you added, if, if it wasn't so, you wouldn't have told us that. One day you will take us home. One day, uh, so many of us will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful in little. Now I'll give you a lot. And we don't even know what that is, but we know it's something great because it's you, because you are the good and gracious king, the kind and generous one. We love you, we praise you, and we ask that you would give us wisdom when it comes to stewarding your resources well. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. As the choir and worship team come back up, we're going to lead us in One more song here just to respond together. So I would invite you to stand and let's sing and worship in response.